0: The first thing I'll say is if you could excuse me. Fortunately, I have a mic, but my voice hurts a little bit from preaching a sermon without a mic last week at a funeral. So I'm still recovering, so pray for me on that. Let's jump into the sermon. So first question I'll just simply ask you is what kind of sermon do you like? I've noticed that there are two particular sermon types that people find themselves enjoying. Some people like the practical sermons. They're just waiting for that practical point that they can directly apply to themselves. They're always saying, well, how can I apply this? What, what can I do with this? What, what is the takeaway? How shall we then live? Other people really like the more theological sermon, diving into these topics, and, and they're kind of lecture-like. And they just love theology. They're theology nerds, and they're just fascinated with those kind of studies. Well, one of the values of doing exegetical preaching is that we don't get to pick our topics. And just like there are people who like listening to certain types of sermons, there's certain people who like preaching certain types of sermons, and usually those people correspond. So the people who like practical sermons, who are preachers, preach practical sermons, right? The people who like theologic, theological sermons also preach those theological sermons. But as I was saying, exegetical preaching, we just go through the book, and we have to preach what is in the text. And sometimes we get to a practical passage, and sometimes we get to more of a theological passage. And so tonight, if you're more of a practical person, stick with me. We'll try to make it practical, but it's not going to be that practical. We're going to be diving into more of theology. Now, my exhortation and encouragement for those who are more practically minded is we need to recognize that all of the scriptures were written for our edification. All of the scriptures are practical for giving us a mind and a worldview and a perspective of how to think about the world and how to then live in light of that thinking. And so the Bible itself has passages so practical, like Proverbs twenty-five, seventeen: Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. How practical is that? Don't go and visit your friend too often. He'll get tired of you, and he doesn't want to tell you to go home, but that's the truth. I mean, that's how practical it gets. And it also gets so theologically obscure, such as this, Isaiah 24, 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven and heaven, and the kings on earth, on the earth, and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will shut up and be shut up in a prison, after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, the sun will be ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. That's the mini-apocalypse of Isaiah 24. Many people don't even realize that's in the Bible. What is these many days? Who are these hosts of heaven shut up in the pit? How will they be punished? These are very (laughs) difficult questions, but yet the Bible has that. And that's, unless you're one of those hosts of heaven or those people on earth locked in the prison, it's probably not too practical for you, right? You're probably not going to have any direct application. But yet that's in our Bible. Because there's something about that passage that's supposed to help us have a biblical worldview, a biblical mindset, and encourage us as we're traveling to the kingdom of God. So, exegetical preaching will preach Isaiah 24, 21 and Proverbs 25, 17. And our response to both passages should be what we find in 1 Samuel 3:10. This is when God called out to Samuel and said, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. We'll hear anything he has to say. No matter what's practical. Or if it it's theological, so in light of that, let's open up our Bibles to First John, chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-two. First John chapter two, eighteen through twenty-two. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they have been of us they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So tonight, as I preface the sermon, we're going to be doing a theological survey, a theological study about what we see in verse 18, the Antichrist. Children, it is the last hour, as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. What is this Antichrist? Who is this Antichrist? Why is it that there's this particular individual Antichrist that they've heard that's coming, and yet he contrasts this with the many Antichrists? Help me with... This concept of Antichrist here. Now, many of us, especially those who have come from a dispensational background, but really most of us, just period, know this term Antichrist. It's not unique to us. Um, We've heard it before. But interesting enough, does anyone know, this is a rhetorical question, does anyone know how many times the phrase Antichrist shows up in the Bible? Because of how popular this term is, you might expect It'd be ubiquitous throughout the Bible. There' was tons of references to this Antichrist figure, but yet, actually it only shows up four times in the whole Bible. Four times. That's very, very small. The Bible is a big book, four times in all 66 books. And interesting enough, it shows up two times in the passage that we just looked at. It shows up one other time in chapter four of this epistle, so that's three times. Three out of the four times is this very epistle. And then it shows up one last time in 2 John 1.7. So all four references to the word Antichrist, three of them show up in this book. One show up in 2 John, but they're all from Johann epistles, which is very interesting. In fact, this has led people to believe that John probably coined the term. He himself is probably the originator of this term. So I'm going to read quickly the passages where we find it. So we see this one. Children, it is the last hour. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. First verse. Second, 1 John 2.22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4.3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. And then last passage, 2 John 1 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and an antichrist. Now, I read those passages relatively quickly, and I don't expect you to discern all that is in those passages. So I'll just list what we gather, what we learn about the antichrist from all four of these Johannine passages. Here's what we learn. We learn four unique things. One, anyone who denies that Jesus is from God or has come into flesh, in other words, Jesus is not God's son or Jesus is simply false or fake or whatever, uh, is an antichrist. So this would be an atheist, this would be anybody who just denies that Jesus is from God. Right? If you think about it, and Neil sermon recently, we look at John chapter three, and you remember what Nicodemus said? We know that you are a teacher from So anyone who denies what Nicodemus knew, namely that Jesus is from God, is an antichrist. Another thing that would make someone an antichrist is someone who recognizes that Jesus is from God, but distorts something about his person. And the specific thing that's being mentioned here is that he has come in the flesh. Now, this was a heresy that believed that, yes, Jesus had come from heaven, and yes, Jesus is God, or at least a heavenly being, but because flesh is evil— then God, or at least his heavenly being, could not be evil. And since, therefore, Jesus must not have had real flesh. So they were mixing Christianity with Greek philosophy and coming up with heresy. That's what was happening, right? This was syncretism, which is what people always do. They make Jesus agree with their pre-beliefs and combine the two and create heresy. Well, to distort the humanity of Christ, you're an antichrist. You're a deceiver. I mean, it doesn't get more plain than that. In fact, let me just stop here for a brief moment and say, when people have asked me who are heretical about their theology of Jesus Christ, are we saved? According to your theology, I usually go to this passage and say, well, look, your particular heresy of denying the deity of Christ is not specifically mentioned as a damnable heresy particularly. But there was this group of people who affirmed his deity, but denied his humanity, and they were called a deceiver and the Antichrist. And so, simply denying his humanity made you an Antichrist. It would certainly seem, by extension, denying his deity would too make you an Antichrist and a deceiver. But that's what the Bible says. Anybody, anybody who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh or denies that Jesus is from God, they are a deceiver and they are an Antichrist. So, the first thing we know about Antichrist. Anyone who denies Jesus from God or that he's come in the flesh. The second thing, there is a spirit of Antichrist. So not only is there an individual who is the Antichrist, but there's actually a spirit of Antichrist that's already operating in the world. This is very similar to what we find in Ephesians, that there's this spirit of the world, this deceiver, the God of this age is the devil. But there's a spirit of Antichrist that's unique from the person of Antichrist, and that spirit is already operating in the in the world at John's day, and if it was operating in John's day, it's operating today. There is a spirit of Antichrist in the world right now. Number three, Christians have been told that there was going to be a Antichrist that was going to come at the end of history. So the thing that we find that's unique in the Johann literature is that John extends the principle of a particular Antichrist and says that there's a spirit of Antichrist and that there are many Antichrists. That's what we find in John. John. But we also know from these passages, and I'll try to show that in a minute here, that there was a belief that there was going to be a literal, personal Antichrist that was going to come at the end of history. And the fourth thing we learn is that the presence of this particular individual Antichrist was going to mark the end of history. So not only was he going to come at the end of history, but when we see him, that was going to be the indication that history was shortly about to end. And when you understand that point, you'll see why there is some deep problems with some people who will hold that the Antichrist is a series of kings and a series of groups of people, namely the Pope, all the way from the beginning of his um, entrance in history all the way to today, which is actually a Reformation belief that's actually found in the Westminster Confession. Very popular belief, and they might be right, but I think they're not right, and I will show you why in a moment. So that's the four things we discover about the Antichrist from John's epistles. Now, before we go on, we should look at and think about what does this term antichrist mean? Now, we can clearly see that this is a prefix, anti, combined with the word Christ. And so you might be thinking, I know what this term means because I know what anti-prefix attached to something means. For example, now this is not to be political, but anti-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer. We know what that means, right? An anti-vaxxer is someone who's against (laughs) it. Right? It means anti means against whatever you say. So anti-vaxxers is against vaccines. So by connection, you would think antichrist means to be against Christ. And if you were to think that, you'd be right. Now, some people say you'd be wrong, but I think, in fact, you would be right. But we need to understand that the word anti also in the Greek, because this was written in Greek, not in English, can also have the meaning of to be in placement of or in substitution of. So the, the word antichrist could mean someone who's against Christ, which is probably what everyone in this room would naturally think the word antichrist means. But there's also a possibility, well within the Greek semantic range, that the word antichrist could mean to be in place of Christ or in substitution of Christ. But the reason that I personally believe and other commentaries agree that not all of them, but many of them would agree that antichrist means in fact to be someone who is against Christ, is when we find this actual phrase in those four Johannine pictures, we find phrase like whoever is the liar, whoever is the deceiver, whoever says this false thing about Christ or or, or that false thing about Christ. And even if you look at 1 John chapter 2 and scan down from 18 to 22, you'll see that in between that, it's talking about these false teachers who left and they were teaching these heresies. And so what we see is that contextually the people that are the deceivers and the antichrist that John's talking about are not people who are saying, I am the Christ. Don't worship Christ. Worship me. That's not what these heretics were saying. They were just saying false things about Christ. And so contextually what we see is to be an antichrist is to be someone who is teaching things that aren't true about Christ. It's to be a blasphemer of Christ. It is to be what you thought it was initially, which is to be against Christ. Now – The idea, though, of being a false Christ or a substitute Christ is also already kind of contained in that antichrist, that original meaning, if you think about it, because for someone to be in place of Christ, to, to try to usurp the place of Christ and replace him, is already implicitly saying something about Christ, namely that Billy is Christ or Buddha is Christ or the Dalai Lama is Christ or whatever, which implicitly means Jesus is not the Christ. And so they are blaspheming. To be in replacement of Christ is to blaspheme Christ, is to be against them. And so really this meaning encapsulates both ideas. But the point being is you can be an antichrist and not say, I am the Christ, if that makes sense. You do not have to go up and say, I am Christ, to be antichrist. Anybody who says something blasphemous about Christ is, by definition, an antichrist. So, now that we understand the term, what Antichrist means, now let's consider the theology of the Antichrist. Now, as I said before, that we only find the term Antichrist found in these four passages. And so, if we were to limit our knowledge of Antichrist for these four passages, we wouldn't actually know very much about the Antichrist. In fact, we would be left wondering kind of if the Antichrist is a future figure at all. In fact, I know people who believe that. Some people think, based on these Johannine passages, that there won't be a literal Antichrist, that this was a misconception of the early church, and John wrote these passages to fix that misconception. People thought there was going to be a particular Antichrist, and John says, no, there's actually only going to be a spirit of Antichrist, so many Antichrists don't expect a singular one. And I can understand why someone might think that were the case if we only had these passages, but we don't only have these passages. These are only the passages that specifically mention the Antichrist by this name. But one thing that's helpful to realize is that the term Antichrist is just that a term. Even the word Christ, if you think about it, is a term. right? Jesus' last name is not Christ. The word Christ means to be anointed, the anointed one. Now, this is getting a little into the weeds and a little complicated, is that the term Christ does function as a personal name. But it's more than a name is what I'm trying to get to. It is a title. It is a description of the person. This would be almost like the phrase the king or the holy one. The holy one is a title for God. The Bible describes God as the holy one, and it becomes a title, almost a name. But it is also a title. It is also a description. Well, so too, the term antichrist, again, as we already looked at, is a description of someone who is Against Christ. And so, if we try to figure out who is this particular individual that is the Antichrist, the, the person against Christ, we must expand our study of this individual beyond these four passages that use that particular name. And the reason that we can do this is because we have to recognize that in, in our passage, 1 John 2 18, that they have already heard that Antichrist is coming. Now, look down at verse 18, you can see that. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. And then if you uh, also look at verse 22, you'll see something very similar. No, it's actually First uh, John 4.3. It says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so what we see from those two passages is that John's audience already knew about this Antichrist and already believed he was coming. But this is actually the first time in the Bible that the word Antichrist is ever used, which means that there's a pre-understanding of John's audience about the Antichrist that supersedes the things that we find in this passage. And this is actually very common when we study the Scriptures. We have to remember that the Bible was written to real people with real circumstances that had real pre-theology Before the Bible was written to them. So the people that received John were not people who didn't know anything about John. They actually knew John. They talked to John. They knew his theology and understood what John said in light of their pre-theology. The problem, the difficulty for us is we aren't the original audience. We're 2,000 years removed. And so we don't know actually the pre-understanding of John's original audience. So they knew that Antichrist is coming. But what was the contents of their, of their knowledge? And actually, this problem of not knowing what the original audience knew, because we're not the original audience, is actually one of Roman Catholics' claim of authority. Because they're saying, listen, you don't know what they said, but we have this oral tradition that contains all that information that you don't have. And that's been preserved within the church, and so that's why you need to come to us to understand your Bible. And maybe some of you understood that argument, but that's what they're basically saying. We don't have enough to understand the Bible, so we need this secret knowledge from Roman Catholics, which they have preserved. By the way, they'll never tell you what that knowledge is, though. It's somehow whispered in the ear of one pope to another. They'll never tell you what it is, but supposedly they have it. Well, the reality is God has given us everything we need for life and doctrine in the Scriptures. And so while we may not be the original audience, we may not never had a conversation with John about the Antichrist, God has given us the entire Bible that if we study comprehensively, then we can understand everything we need to know about the Antichrist and everything we need to understand this passage. So what does the Bible teach about this figure, the Antichrist, this individual who is going to be particularly against Christ? Well, the Bible teaches a lot about this person, okay? Uh, the, he is called the deceiver in those passages in John. He is the little horn found in Daniel, chapter 7. He is the abomination of, de- of desolation found in the Olivet Discord, found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and in Luke. He's also the man of lawlessness that we studied from this very pulpit a couple of months ago, a couple of years now, maybe, uh, in Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. And then he is the beast of Revelation, chapter 13, all the way up to chapter 20. So when we understand Scripture in light of Scripture, then we will receive a comprehensive, cohesive picture of who this Antichrist is. So let's look at this real quick. If we go to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, we find the most comprehensive understanding of who this Antichrist figure is. And what I'm going to try to do is compare what we see in the Johannine picture and what we see in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. So 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seemingly to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. And I'm going to pause here. Let me just summarize that. People were thinking Christ could come back literally five seconds from now. That's what they believed. He was going to come back, and not only could he come back, that he very likely was going to come back five seconds from now. And this disrupted them. And it would most likely disrupt you if you believe most likely Christ is going to come back before this sermon's over. Well, maybe not that. But if you thought before this week's over, you might just say, I'm not going to work anymore. And it just might disrupt your life. And that's why this was written to say, no, no, no. Don't think that. There actually is something that must happen before, a prerequisite, before Christ comes back. And that's what he says in verse 3, that Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So there's two things that must happen before Christ comes back. Five seconds from now. Two things are this. The rebellion... And the man of lawlessness being revealed. Verse 5 tells us that he already told them these things. This is not something that they just heard. They've already, he's already told them that. Verse 7 says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he is being restrained currently until he is taken out of the way. And then verse 8, look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, this is how much so that the Antichrist marks the end of history. This is actually really interesting. When the Antichrist is revealed, and when he's revealed, there won't be any debates on it. These passages will be perfectly clear, and you'll be uh, perfectly say, yes, that is the Antichrist. This is really interesting. When you identify the Antichrist, you will know that that man will not die a natural death. You will know within that person's lifetime... There's only one exception, and that would be if he's somehow supernaturally preserved to live thousands of years, which is total speculation and crazy. Almost certainly, this individual will live a normal human life, and actually it will be cut short because he's going to die, and we know he's how he's going to die. He's going to die by being obliterated by the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is also um, symbolically revealed in Revelation chapter 19. So that's how much that this sign indicates that the end is here, and we see that. Explicitly taught there in verse 8. Verse 9 tells us that the lawless one is going to be supernaturally empowered by Satan with all these power and false signs and wonders. And he's going to have this wicked deception. No wonder he's called the deceiver. And he's going to deceive everyone who is perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So there's just so many similarities between what we see in Second Thess- Thessalonians chapter 2 and what we see in the Johannine passages. Here's a few one. Number one, in 2 Thessalonians 2, the whole point of this passage is to say that, that the Antichrist indicates that we're at the very end of history. Hope you see that. When the Antichrist comes, you know Christ is right about to come. And that's the same thing we see in 1 John 2.8. He says this. We know it's the last hour. How? Because of the presence of Antichrist. It's the same idea that the presence of Antichrist or the Antichrist indicates that it is about to come. History. Another thing that we see is uh, from both of these passages is that there's a there's an idea that the Antichrist is already at work. In Second Thessalonians two seven, it talks about the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and we see here this idea that the spirit of Antichrist is already moving through the world, and that even that there are multiple Antichrists that are already coming. And so let me just stop here and say this. What's really interesting is this theology, which may be new to some of you and may be obscure to the rest of you, is actually foundational to the Christian faith. This Thessalonian church here was not planted for 5, 10, 25 years. It was planted within a year of planting this. Paul had already taught them a theology of the Antichrist. It's really fascinating. And so that tells us that the early church was deeply eschatological, meaning that it's often fashionable today to say, you know, I'm a pan-millennialist or eschatology is not important, it was my least favorite subject, or anything like that, right? But that wasn't the way it was with the early church. The early church was deeply eschatological. Now, some people have taken this so extreme that there's been kind of a backlash that people don't want to argue about eschatology because there's so much debate, and so they... Make it seem uninteresting. And yet the Bible is extremely interested in eschatology. Think about the book of Daniel. Think about all of the discourse. Isaiah 24 through 27. 2 Thessalonians. And the whole book of Revelation is all about eschatology because the Bible, even though sometimes we aren't, is extremely interested in eschatology. And that should not really surprise us. Why? Because the Christian faith is deeply eschatological. What's eschatology mean? Study of the last things. Our faith is deeply eschatological because Romans chapter 8, verse 24 says this, for in this hope, talking about the redemption of our bodies, we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. Now who hopes for that which is seen? No one. We only hope for that which we do not see and we wait patiently. The whole Christian faith is a disposition of looking ahead. And so we unfortunately have run out of time, and there's so much more to say. But let me say this. I've often heard people say that we're not looking for the Antichrist, but we're looking for Jesus Christ. And in some ways, that is true. In some ways, we are looking to Jesus Christ because that's our hope. Our hope is not the Antichrist. Nobody wants to meet the Antichrist, right? This individual will be responsible for mass murder and making our life really miserable, even if you do survive. Nobody wants that. But what we want is Jesus Christ, and what the Antichrist does is point to Jesus Christ. And this kind of reminds me of Terry's prayer before the sermon about our pain and our suffering making us uncomfortable and reminding us that this is not our home, but we want to be at home with Jesus Christ. And that's really what pain, misery, Antichrist, they all do. All of these things remind us that this is not the place we want to be. The Antichrist particularly tells us when things get really dark and things get really evil, there's light behind that tunnel and that Jesus Christ is going to appear. So let me just tell you practically, as I think about the Antichrist and why I think that this theology is helpful, number one, it's in the Bible. Number two, whenever I see things are going bad, I always think, well, at least the Antichrist is not here. Things always look better in light of the fact that I know one future generation is going to encounter the Antichrist. Another thing is it really destroys any kind of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel kind of theology. Here's what I mean. Often, we will say that we don't expect God to just make us healthy and wealthy and blessed and beautiful, right? But yet, as soon as our health and our wealth and something bad happens and someone dies or anything else, we immediately start questioning God. God, you wouldn't be doing this if you loved me. That happens to nearly all of us, right? But as we think about the Antichrist and we realize there's coming a day we're, the restrainer will be released, which is, I think is God, but it's ultimately controlled by God. And if there's going to be this madman who is going to come around and obliterate almost all Christians, we realize that, yes, God will let terrible things happen to Christians, even at mass scale. And we can even, even if you don't agree with me about the Antichrist, we're doing a study in Sunday school about the Maccabee, Maccabee period. And you'll see that Antiochus Epiphanes did that very thing, who was a precursor to the Antichrist, by the way, to the Jews. And so when you see your life in retrospect to what happened to the Maccabean period and what's going to happen by the Antichrist, things look really, really good. And you realize, no, God will allow the most horrific and terrible things to happen to his people, but he is still good, he is still God, he's still in control. Do not let pain, suffering, misery on a mass scale to you individually or to multiple people shake your face because there's no reason for you to have that shake. No reason to be shaken by those things because they've already been prophesied. Jesus said, I've told you these things beforehand so that you may believe. The last thing is when we see the darkness of our culture, as we see things spinning out of control. I often hear people, I don't know why, even good men, will often go around and blame the church. If only the church would have been out there, hit the streets harder. Some of that's true in the sense that we do need to hit the street harder, we do need to be more godly, we do need to evangelize, we need to give more, all of that. That's always true. We can always grow. But the reality is, God has already told us, no matter what we do, in the end, there's a madman going to come and try to kill us all. And when you realize that, then you won't go around blaming the church for the failure of an evil, corrupt world turning against Christ. Because that's already going to happen no matter what. No matter what we do. Now... Hopefully, that doesn't discourage you from doing good works because we ought to do good works and we ought to be salt and light to this world. and We ought to bless whoever we can bless. But it should tamper and, and dampen our expectations that we're going to conquer this and conquer that. And, no, no, we're here to spread the gospel, to be salt and light, and we allow God, we sow. And we reap, but we allow God to bring in the harvest. And we don't blame Him for what the harvest looks like because He knows best and we trust in Him. Well, please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the very practical stuff in the Bible, the stuff that we can easily apply to ourselves, like don't visit your neighbor's house too often lest he hate us. Lord, we also thank you for uh, the eschatology that we find in the Bible, Lord. We thank you that we can look down the corridors of history because you have told us these things. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit will help us to apply things that seem at some point, difficult to apply. Well, we thank you that the Antichrist is not here. At the same time, Lord, we ask that you prepare us for the day that the Antichrist would come. And Lord, if we have the opportunity to see the Antichrist, Lord, help us to look up, because we know that our redemption draws near. We pray things in Jesus' name.